Lord Jesus, we bow before you and you alone. All of the heavens cry holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we want to cry that same prayer with our hearts and our lives this morning as your people. We are here to worship you. We are here because of you. And we offer our lives to you. So, Father, as we bow in your presence, we recognize that your name is holy. We recognize that you alone are worthy. And we ask that by your spirit now, you would speak to us about how it is we must worship you. Teach us to adore you as you deserve. Teach us to humble ourselves before you as we must. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So good to be with all of you this morning. Last Sunday, as we gathered together on New Year's Day, we looked at Revelation 21, where God says, I am making all things new. And we saw that in that newness of a new heaven and new earth, the essence of it, the centerpiece of it, is God's presence with us, with his people. And we encouraged ourselves to walk in his presence. That's something the Lord has challenged me with for the last two weeks, to walk in his presence, to practice his presence every moment of every day. We do that as we live out the mission statement that we believe the Lord has given to us as a church, to worship, grow, go as a house of prayer. And as we've done for the last couple years, we want to spend the remaining four Sundays of January reminding ourselves of what God has called us to do, as our mission statement says, to worship God, to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ, to go into all the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ as a house of prayer. So this morning we're going to be looking at worship. Next week, Lake Slaybach will be helping us understand uh, what it means to grow in Christ. The following week, Gar Hoover will unpack for us going because he's now taking over our local outreach ministry. And then we'll be looking the final Sunday of of January at what it means, again, to be a house of prayer and challenging ourselves to live that way. We're just coming out of the Christmas season, and one of the challenges that uh, I find, I think many of us find at Christmas time, is determining what kind of present to buy for people that we want to give presents to. Trying to think of what would they want. So sometimes we rack our brains, we go shopping, we get frustrated, we finally end up asking them, what do you want? Just tell me what you want, right? We, we don't want to get it wrong. The National Retail Federation estimates that about 18% of all of the gifts that were given this past Christmas are going to be returned. That's a whopping $158 billion worth. People gave the wrong gift. It's just going to be returned. I want something different. My question is, do we treat worship in the same way? Worship is something we offer to God as a gift. But sometimes as a church, we get it wrong. We don't give him what he wants. It's not the gift he's looking for. 
And sometimes as a church, we say, well, that's not the gift I wanted. That's not the worship I wanted. So like returning a gift, we just go to another place. I'll find another church. What does God want when we come to Him on Sunday mornings to worship? And why is it that the very purpose that we gather together on Sundays to worship God has often, in many churches, become a center and issue of contention. I think as we study God's Word this morning, we'll see that many times it's because we have made worship the subject rather than God the subject of worship. We gather to worship God. We don't just gather to worship. We don't gather for the experience. We gather to worship God. Our mission statement, when we abbreviate it, is worship, grow, go as a house of prayer. But when we expand it, it's we are committed to worshiping God, to growing as disciples of Jesus Christ, going to transform our world by the power of the Holy Spirit as a house of prayer. We gather with a subject in mind when we worship. We come to worship God specifically. And when God is the subject, questions of practice, questions of liturgy, of musical genres, of styles, they're determined by how they suit and satisfy God, not us. When God is the subject of our worship, when He's the one we worship, only what God wants ultimately matters because we're doing it for Him. It's our gift to Him, and we want it to be what He desires. So our, our primary question has to be, as we look at worship and what does it mean to be a worshiping community, what kind of worship does God want? And does, he God, does God explain that to us? Does He tell us clearly what kind of worship He wants? Well, Jesus said specifically these words. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Okay, what kind of people? And how are they worshiping Him? So if you'd open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, that's where those words come. The Father is seeking such people, these kind of people, to worship Him. John chapter 4 is the story of Jesus meeting a Samaritan woman at the well. And there's an awful lot of important truth in this e event that we don't have time to go into this morning. There's so much about evangelism and so much about Jesus knowing what's in our hearts and everything else. But most of us know this story. Jesus sends his disciples into the town to get some food. He stays. This woman comes to the well. She comes when no one else is around because she's not exactly a favored person in her town. Jesus asks her for some water. She, she asks, why are you, a Jew, asking me for water? Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. I'd give you living water. And then Jesus says, why don't you call your husband? And, and she says, well, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five of them. And the man you're with now is not your husband. 
So probably to try to divert the conversation, to try to change it, this is what she says, beginning in verse 20. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. That last phrase of Jesus, I who speak to you am he, if you read it in the original, it's ego eimi. It's that phrase that we looked at back at the Christmas series, I am. Jesus says, I am he. I am the one you just spoke of. I am the Messiah. So Jesus claims the authority of God himself, of the eternal God, and what has he just said with that kind of authority. Well, she is trying to probably divert the discussion from her very private life, which is very wounded and very messed up at the moment, and so she diverts it to a good place where she can confront an issue that's always an area of contention, worship. In their day, just like it is in ours. And she says to Jesus, so our our fathers worshiped on this mountain, you say it's in Jerusalem, And what does Jesus say? Jesus says to her in response, if we're to summarize it, worship is not about a place, but it's about a person. Jesus redirects her thoughts from the mountain, the place of worship, to the person, the God that we are all called to worship. Now, in order to understand exactly the context, let me remind us of the, con- the, the struggle between the Jews and the Gentiles and why worship was central to it. The, the Samaritans, not just the Gentiles, the Samaritans, were a group of people that had become a people because when the Assyrian government overthrew the northern part of Israel, the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., they deported almost all of the Jews out of the northern kingdom. They left only the poorest of the poor. And then, as they conquered other kingdoms, they forcibly repatriated or patriated those people into what used to be the northern kingdom. So now you've got people from all these other kingdoms that have been overwhelmed by the Assyrians, forced to come. They live with the poorest of the poor Jews who were left in the northern kingdom, and they begin to intermarry. As they intermarried, they they developed their own religion because they had brought religions from these other nations, but also the poor Jews had held their religion. And a core part of this new Samaritan faith was that they accepted the Old Testament first five books, but nothing else. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they said that's the Word of God. They did not accept any of the writings of the, of the Psalms or the prophets, none of the rest of it, just the first five books. 
they also began to revere Mount Gerizim. Now, Jesus is at Jacob's well with the Samaritan woman. Jacob's well is at the foot of the mountain, so they would have been looking right at the mountain, and she said, we worship on this mountain. They would have just seen it. It's right there. It's about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. That mountain was revered by them because they knew that in Genesis, Abraham had built an altar there. Jacob had built an altar there. It was also important because Moses had said to the Israelites before they crossed the Jordan River, Moses was not going to cross with them, but in Deuteronomy chapter 11, he said, when you get into the promised land, you are to divide up all of the Jews, put half of them on Mount Gerizim, half of them on Mount Ebal, which is the next mountain next door, and the, the Jews on Mount Gerizim are going to repeat the blessings that will come when you obey the law and the commandments. The Jews that are on Mount Ebal are to, re, are to recite the curses that will come if you do not obey the law and the commandments. And so they did this in, in sort of a, two choirs on two, two different mountains shouting back and forth at each other. Mount Gerizim had a very important place in the history of the people. So the Samaritans had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. That temple had been uh, destroyed by Antiochus Epiphanes when he, put, he transformed it into a temple for Zeus. And then in, because it had been so desecrated and because it was not in Jerusalem, the Maccabees raised it to the ground. John Hyrcanus, the Maccabee leader, raised it to the ground, destroyed it. So by the time Jesus is talking to this lady, she says, we worship on this mountain, but their temple is gone. Now the Jews, in contrast, believe not only the first five books of the Old Testament, they believe the whole Old Testament, the same Testament we have today. And in the whole Old Testament, it's clearly communicated that God had chosen Jerusalem to be the place where he'd place his name. Solomon's temple had been built there. It still was there at this time. And Jesus says to her in verse 22, you, you worship what you do not know because they only held part of the scriptures. They didn't know God's full revelation of himself. But we worship what we do know because they worshiped the God who had revealed himself through all of the, the, the books of poetry as well as the prophets. And truth is important when we worship. That's absolutely true. But then Jesus responds to her about the place. And what does Jesus say to her about the place? He says, the place is not important. The place is not central. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming whether, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The place is not the real issue. The temple in Gerizim, which should never have been built there, was already raised to the ground. The temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, 70 AD. Neither of those places were to be the important thing. Now, place still remains important for many, many people. In fact, if you followed the news this week, on Tuesday, the, one of the new ministers in the new government in Israel went up on the Temple Mount with his own Israeli security, and it created a huge uproar among the Palestinians and among the Arab nations. They said he had stormed the holy site. Everyone still holds on to these places. And Jesus has said the place is no longer what is critical. That's where we don't have time to go into it, but the last two verses where Jesus says, I am the Messiah. He is the place. 
Worship is now coming through him. That's unpacked through the rest of the gospel. So what is important? If it's not place, Jesus never mentions style. He never says anything about instruments that are used. He never says anything about the kinds of songs that are sung. What does he say is important? Well, we see that beginning in verse 21. We can easily fly right by it, but what does Jesus say? It's neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The Father is the subject of worship. We could say object, but he's a person. The Father is the subject of worship. We worship him. Did you notice when the woman talked about worship, there's no subject? We worship here. You worship there. How often do we do that as Christians? We worship like this. You worship like that. Wait a minute. The person we worship is what's most important. It's where you worship the Father. Verse 23, the hour is coming, is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus always adds the subject. You keep going in the end of verse 23, for the Father is seeking such persons to worship Him. He always adds who we're worshiping. He always emphasizes that. Verse 24, same thing. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So the subject of our worship, the person we worship, is what is most important according to Jesus. Now, what does that mean for us? How do we apply that to us? Well, sometimes we focus on a place. Sometimes we see certain places as more worship centers. We call this our worship center. When I grew up, my parents always told me not to run in church. You know, in church you behave a little differently than you do at home. That's not bad, but Jesus is saying there's something far more important than that. We, we have a tendency to focus on the physical just like this woman did. You notice that when Jesus addresses the kind of worship God wants, he says nothing about style, he says nothing about attire, what people are wearing. He says nothing about the instruments that are used or the genre of music that is used. He says nothing about whether it should be subdued and meditative or whether it should be energetic and exciting. You see, our preferences are not what matters when we're offering something to God. It's His preference. It's just like giving a Christmas gift. You need to give what that person wants, not what we want. What is essential is what God wants, because we're offering something to God. He is the subject of our worship. Have you ever gotten a gift from somebody and you thought, that's really something you want, not something I would want? I was on the bad side of that, really bad, at the end of my first year of marriage, it was not a happy day for me. I gave my wife what I thought was a beautiful, she was in language school in Africa, and she was starting out her career as a missionary in Africa, and I gave her a beautiful bronze clock in the shape of Africa with the five big animals of Africa embossed in bronze. It was beautiful. I wanted it on my wall in my house. And when she opened it, I remember her looking at me and saying, Brent, this is what you want. 
Not what I want. You know what? It never went on the wall in our house. How often do we do that with God? We offer to Him what we want, not what He wants. If He is the subject, He is the recipient of our worship, are we offering Him what He desires? Worship is for Him, it's about Him. It's to him. So worship is about what he wants, not what I want. You see, the one that we worship needs to determine how we worship. Jesus says worship is not about a place, and he doesn't mention anything about a style or genre or anything else. It's about a person. And the person we worship then determines how we worship. What does he want from it? So what is worship? It's all in this little phrase that Jesus mentioned he mentions here in verses 23 and 24. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There is no other option, must. That word is specifically there in the, in the original language. This is the only way, the only thing God is looking for. What is it? Those who true, are true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. What is worship then? What is worship? The word used for worship here communicates concrete action of falling before majesty. That's what it means, falling down before majesty. It literally means to incline your face to the ground. We don't do that very often, do we? That's not our culture. It's not what we're used to. But that's what the word means. Now, in early Greek usage of this word, they quickly connected to that the heart attitude with the physical response. Neither of them should be missing. To bow down to the ground was great, but your heart better be there. And to say, my heart is there, but you refuse to bow is not okay. They both went together. When Jesus uses this word, that was the understanding. And every single use of this word for worship in the book of Revelation, where it appears multiple times, has both of those pictures in mind. Let me just give you three examples from Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Chapter 7, verse 11 of Revelation, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Revelation eleven sixteen, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. And there are more examples in Revelation. They show with their bodies what is in their hearts. Worship means to fall down 
before majesty. Worship is about what we give to him, not what we get. Worship is something we offer. It's not something we receive. So if we are offering God a gift, what kind of worship does God want? Jesus says, true worshipers will worship the Father. The subject is there. It's always worship of him in spirit and truth. We worship the Father in spirit and truth, and that's the only way, he says. It's the only way you can worship. They must worship the Father that way. So what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? Well, there are all kinds of efforts to understand that. We, we can say, well, Jesus is truth. Jesus says at the end, it's not the place that's important because I am the Messiah and those those temples are going to disappear. You worship through me. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we worship through Jesus. That's true. We worship in spirit, in the spirit of God. Absolutely. Because just as we don't know how to pray, the spirit has to help us to pray. We don't know how to worship. The spirit has to help us to worship. But spirit and truth is, is a phrase that simply means, the best way I can interpret it, the way I can state it is, it's authentic whole life adoration of God. It's not put on, it's not a performance, it's authentic, but it's whole life adoration. It's that falling prostrate, prostrate before majesty. But it's got to be the real deal. It's all of our mind, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, just that's how we love him, that's how we worship him. It's what we have in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, what is our reasonable form of worship? What is our good, right form of worship to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? It's, it's whole life, authentic, bowing before majesty in submission to him. We submit ourselves to him. That's what he wants. Jesus is not talking about the forms or the liturgy or the styles or the kinds of songs or for centuries hymns were not allowed and then hymns finally made their way in and then guitar wasn't allowed and guitar made its way in and drums weren't allowed and drums made their way Jesus is not talking about any of that he says what the father is asking for is authentic whole life adoration of him that's what we need to bring so can I be real honest with with all of us for me or for you, for any of us to sit here on a Sunday morning and critique the people who are leading us in worship here is not what God is looking for. He is looking for our giving him a gift of our whole hearts in absolutely adoration. That's what he's looking for from us. Descriptions of worship are all over Scripture. We've looked at a few in Revelation, but the last two psalms unpack it in an amazing way. And Jeremy began this morning by quoting Psalm 150. Let me just mention a couple things from Psalm 149. It begins with praise and then the Lord. He's there, 
the object, the subject of our worship is always the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. And then we're told, don't only sing, but be glad, rejoice in the king. That's verse 2 of Psalm 149. And then verse 3, praise his name with dancing. Boy, we haven't done that in a long time, have we? Praise his name with dancing. Now, it's not everybody's culture, but it can be. It is a right way to worship God. I want you to see this video, 2019, my last trip to Uganda. This is one of the churches that we had planted. This is just a little snippet of their worship. Now, if I let you see the whole video ahead, some of you would be saying, oh, boy. If they are dancing for the sake of dancing, because it's what they like, it's not what God wants. But if they are dancing in celebration of who he is and offering themselves to him, it is absolutely what God wants. You see, he is not wound up about the style. He is concerned if we're offering ourselves authentically our whole lives in adoration of him. Psalm 150 gives us all kinds of ways we can worship him. For instance, Psalm 150 talks about worshiping him with brass, praise him with the trumpets. It talks about worshiping him with stringed instruments like the lute and the harp. It talks about worshiping him with percussion instruments, the tambourine. It mentions dance again. It says, make sure you use sounding cymbals. In fact, loud, clashing cymbals. So everything from singing a new song to using stringed instruments like harps and using trumpets and using loud percussion it all is appropriate because the, what, what Jeremy read to us, let everything that has breath, everything we can use, let us just use it to glorify God. What is worship? Worship must be in spirit and in truth. Worship is bowing down, prostate before God, heart and soul, physically as well. I would love to see us sometimes in our worship time having people naturally fall on their knees and pray. It's what God looks for. Our bodies should show what's in our hearts. What does all of this mean for us? If we are committed to be a worshiping community, God the Father is the subject of our worship. Jesus talks about worshiping him, worshiping the Father, true worshipers of the Father. And what does he want? Well, what we need to offer him is what he wants, not what we want. What people worship with in Uganda, if they came and listened to our orchestra, they would fall asleep. And if if we did what they do in Uganda, we would probably feel so uncomfortable, like this is just not good. God is not looking at that stuff. He's looking at our hearts. 
Are we offering it to Him? Are we bowing our lives in adoration to Him? God seeks those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. God seeks those then who are bowing in authentic, whole life adoration of Him. Worship is not only what we do here on Sunday morning. It is what we walk out of here and do when we have lunch together. It's what we do on Monday morning and on Monday night and every day of the week. Our, our lives bowed in surrender, submission to Him. God seeks those who bow in authentic, whole life adoration. Worship is about what we give to God, not what we get. And brothers and sisters, when we say, I don't like the worship, we have just revealed what we're looking for, what I want. That's not what it's for. In Uganda, when they dance like that in the church, Believe me, I don't know how to get up and join them. It's not me. My wife gets up and joins them. It is her. But what God is not looking for is, are you doing that? He's looking for our hearts and our adoration of Him. The focus isn't the instruments or the music that we give, but hearts and lives genuinely bowed in submissive adoration. Brothers and sisters, all I can say is I have prayed all week that I would say nothing more and nothing less than God once said because worship has become an area of contention in our church as it is in many. And most often when it's done that way, if it's not worship in truth, if it's not biblical worship, that's a problem. But most often the contention is because we see ourselves as the recipients of worship. It's what I want. Worship is a gift. Don't give a copper clock to God that you want. Let's give to God what He wants. And it can show up in all kinds of genres all kinds of ways. As we travel the world, we see God's people worshiping Him in so many ways. Let's just make sure we're doing it in spirit and in truth. Father, we bow before You because You are the one we want to worship. We all have our natural tendencies. We all have our natural preferences, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when we come to worship, it is not about us. It is all about You. So help us to bow our lives in submissive adoration of you. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, remembering you are the subject, you are the recipient of worship. And help us to give you what you are looking for, not what we are looking for. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.